0: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 294 with Todd Henry. This is really fun because I've seen Todd Henry's name and podcast many, many times in the iTunes rankings. And he's a champ, accidental creative. It's been going for 13 years, and he just has loads of insight that comes from true experience. So you'll learn one, why bounded autonomy produces the best creative results. Two, the right and wrong way to provide feedback on creative output. And three, how you may be subtly eroding trust. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep294. Here is Todd's story. Todd Henry teaches leaders and organizations how to establish practices that lead to everyday brilliance. He's the author of four books, The Accidental Creative, Die Empty, Louder Than Words, and Herding Tigers, which has been translated into more than a dozen languages. And he speaks and consults across dozens of industries on creativity, leadership, and the passion for work. His book, Die Empty, was named by Amazon.com as one of the best books of 2013. And his latest book, Herding Tigers, is about what creative people need from their leader. And how to give it to them. So, thanks to Todd for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Todd. Todd, it's great to have you on the How to Be Awesome About Your Job podcast. It is great to be here, Pete. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I think we're going to have so much fun. I have seen your podcast, The Accidental Creative, again and again and again in the iTunes rankings that I probably check more than I should. So, <laughs> <laughs> so here we are talking to, to the man behind the, the brand. Oh, it, yeah, I'll
1: tell you. It's having been podcasting for a very, very long time. You, I know how hard it is to build an audience. I know how hard it is to create something that so many people find valuable. And so kudos to you because you have really climbed the top of a very difficult mountain and have stayed there for a very long time. So uh, that's a testament to the value that you're providing to the
0: audience. That, oh, that shocks. Well, well, flatter is always a great <laughs> and that start. Was not, Todd.
1: <laughs> and that was not planned, by the way. That was we didn't talk about that in the pre-show. That I was good. Okay, you're that. gonna compliment me and then. I'm going (laughs) to.
0: Well, let's go back in time a little bit. Speaking of large audiences, you mentioned that once you were a country singer full time and you had an audience as large as 40,000 people.
1: Okay. I think we're done here. Okay. This has been crazy. <laughs> no. Yeah. So I actually, as I now call it, it's funny. I call it with my kids. I call it my misguided twenties. Right. <laughs> this was like 25 years ago now, but yeah, I actually toured as a country musician, uh, singer and we played like West coast Bakersfield, like Buck Owens kind of, you know, really sort of rowdy honky tonk kind of country music. It was really fun. For a number of years, we got to open for some great bands. And one time we got invited to play at this festival over in, uh, I think it's called St. Clairsville, Ohio. It's called, get ready for this, it's called Jamboree in the Hills, right? And somebody told me there were like 40,000 people there that day. It was really amazing. It was like, seriously, I've never been in a situation before where it was like, you know, people, as far as you can see, I speak at events now and do all kinds of, I've never seen a crowd like that before. It was literally like they, I hear the phrase, a sea of people. It was literally a sea of people. Like I couldn't even see the end of the people. So that was, that was really fun. It was a great experience. And then. You know, like so many of those kind of stories. You know, I met a girl and oh. <laughs> realized that maybe the music business wasn't necessarily uh going to be a long-term thing and uh ended up choosing gainful employment and marrying an amazing woman, which is uh has absolutely been the right the right course of action. So 25 years later
0: here I am. And that's it. That's my life story. Oh, well, that is good. Well, the, the thing <laughs> is with with meeting an amazing woman, you have so much more fodder for your country songs.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's, right. that's true. That's true. Well, see, that's what happened. I, I got happy, and then I didn't have anything sad to write about anymore, and I had to give up country music.:
0: Well, that's unfortunate. In a way, but in another way, we're all being enriched by by your work. And so maybe you could orient us a little bit to what is accidental creative all about.
1: Yeah, so uh, I started accidental creative about a decade ago, and the goal of the company is to help people and teams be what I call prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time. Right, doing a lot of work, doing great work, and doing it in a sustainable way, in such a way that they can continue producing high volume of Quality work over the course of time this is it 's really difficult to do because uh, you know we 're all facing the pressure to do more uh, resources are scarce expectations are only rising i mean i 've never worked with an organization that had someone say you know it's it 's just amazing expectations keep going down no of course not expectations are rising and so You know, with that, we all have to adapt and learn how to build practices and rhythms and structures and systems into our life to help us approach the the work that we're doing on a daily basis, which... When we're dealing with the creative process, when we're trying to solve very complex problems is challenging because you can't force creativity into a predictable system. (laughs) You don't know when that brilliant insight is going to happen. And so the only way that you can systemize around creativity is by having rituals, practices, systems, wells that you draw from. And the, the thing is, Pete, that you have to build those systems before you need them right? If you're going to create on demand, if you want to have a brilliant idea at a moment's notice, you have to begin far upstream from the moment
0: you need that brilliant idea.
1: And the way you do that is by building practices, systems, rhythms into your life. So that's really what we do is we work with companies to help them do that.
0: Oh, that's good. And and we're going to talk about that in sort of group settings with your book, Herding Tigers and and Management and Collaboration. But while we're talking, I I can't resist. Could you give us maybe one or two practices you found for yourself, for clients, for listeners that just rock in terms of a little bit of effort and a whole lot of result? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one is it's going to sound like the most basic thing in the world,
1: um, but it's not what we know. It's what we do that matters. And the practice is implementing a ritual of study into your life. And by study, I don't mean pull out the trigonometry textbook and dust it off. And, you know, I mean, that might be fine. Maybe that's what you're curious about. But what I mean is, are you building time into your day to fill your mind with valuable stimuli? Are you exploring your curiosity? Are you, as Stephen Sample from USC called it, are you communing with great minds? Are you allowing other people to fill your wealth so that when you're in a moment, because creativity really is just connecting things, as Steve Jobs famously equipped we're connecting dots, sometimes non-intuitive dots that live just outside the periphery of our field of vision. So the more stuff we put into our head and the more we begin to think systemically, the more non-intuitive dots we can connect. And as we do that, we begin to create disproportionate value. But it begins by not just putting things into our mind, but actually taking time to stop and think about, okay, how does what I'm absorbing right now Affect or in some way relate to the work that I'm doing. So I might be reading a book about gardening, right? Or particle physics, but I can glean insights from those books and apply them to the work that I'm doing and try to force them together and try to play with what Stephen Johnson calls the adjacent possible, right? Explore and experiment and try to connect dots and play around with ideas. I can do that during that study time in a way that I often can't do in my on-demand role at work because we simply don't have the time or the resources to be able to play around forever. So do you have a ritual of study in your life? It's a huge, huge thing. And then sort of on the other end of the spectrum, I'll tell you that one of the most valuable practices that I've personally implemented and now many other people that I've talked to have implemented is taking a midday walk. And again, it sounds incredibly simple. It's like, well, yeah, duh. Okay. Well, but are you doing it? Right? Is that something you're actually implementing? And what this does for is it gets us out of our environment. Often when I'm trying to generate ideas with teams, I'll send them on what I call a stimulus dive, which means I want you to go out into the environment. I want you to go out into the neighborhood around this office building or whatever, wherever we happen to be. And I want you to just observe. And I want you to come back with one piece of stimulus. It could be something you find in a store. It could be something you pick up off the street. It could be something you see. You can snap a photo of it, whatever it is. I just want you to observe your environment and think about how are the things I'm seeing and observing potentially helping me solve this difficult creative problem that we're working on right now. It's amazing what just getting out and being active and getting out in the environment and allowing new stimulus to wash over you can do for your creative process. So those are two very simple things. I mean, there are a thousand more, right? I could talk about right now. Two very simple and immediately implementable practices I think people could put in play to help them jog Ideas more consistently.
0: Oh, that's cool, and it just sounds like that'd be a fun place to work. Oh, my job right now is to okay. I'm, I'm down with this. Thanks, Todd.
1: <laughs> Frankly, one of the biggest hurdles I have to get people over is like, are, okay, are people actually working right now? Yes, they're working. Yes, that's what they're doing right now. They are working. They're as a matter of fact, if you just have them sitting and staring at the problem, that's probably the least effective thing you could have them do right now. Right? You, you very rarely do you solve a problem just by sitting and staring at the problem. You have to go out. You have to look at parallel problems that have been solved in the past. You have to go out and challenge assumptions. You have to go out and and look at what's going on in the environment. You have to get yourself immerse yourself in different kinds of stimuli. Go do a dumpster dive, right? And see what happens. And it feels very inefficient, but these kinds of things reveal intuitive connections that are just beneath the surface that we often sort of overlook in our
0: mad dash to try to solve the problem. Mm. That sounds wise. That sounds wise. And you've collected a number of these practices and mindsets and mechanics and goodies in your book, Herding Tigers. Can you give us the overview of what's this all about?
1: Yeah. So for many years, I like creative teams. And I would always hear this phrase, and you've probably heard it too, Pete, that leading creative people is like herding cats. Yeah. And every time I heard that, it took everything I could. I mean, seriously, not to punch the person. I am I not cats. Because... How
0: dare you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, because, you know, what's implied by that is that creative people are flighty, that they have no discipline, that they just bounce from thing to thing, that they think they're the center of the universe, they're egomaniacs. I mean, that's really, I think, what is implied by that. And one time I was speaking at a conference and I, it just came out of my mouth. I said, How many of you have heard this phrase that leading creative people is like hurting cats? And, you know, all the hands went up and I said, it, They're not, it's not like that at all. It's actually more like herding tigers. These are powerful, majestic creatures capable of great beauty one moment and then turning around and ripping you to shreds if they're not <laughs> led properly, right? And, and everybody laughed and I thought, oh, that's really cute. So I put it as a line in the book and then that became the title of the book, thanks to my editor. But really what I wanted to communicate to leaders is, listen, if you want to get the best work out of the highly talented, creative people on your team who are, by the way, very driven and very driven to do great work. They want to do great work because often they identify themselves by the work that they do then you have to know what it is they need, which sounds intuitive, but I think we often make assumptions about what creative people need that aren't actually true. So for example, we tend to think that creative people are all about freedom. Just give me freedom. Don't fence me in. No boundaries, right? It's all about the idea, all about freedom. And that's not actually true. If you talk to creative pros who are in the trenches, who are professionals, who are really doing great work. They'll tell you that a lack of boundaries is detrimental to the creative process. They need some kind of bounding arc. They need some kind of boundary to help them focus their attention, focus their assets, focus their time, their energy. Orson Welles, the great filmmaker, once said that the absence of limitation is the enemy of art. And I think that's a brilliant observation. Without some sort of limitation, some sort of bounding arc, it's difficult for creative people to focus their energy on what really matters. And so the book is really about what is it creative people need from their leadership and how do we create an environment in which highly talented, driven, creative people can thrive?
0: Yeah, that really resonates with me as as I'm thinking about, so I'm making this course right now and uh, I've been working with some designers and and more and it's like great creative folk, in my own experience, it's like they they eat it up when I give them some guidance in terms of like, you know what, the question mark there that you've put in that logo to me feels a little bit like looming and scary like a monster being projected uh, over a flashlight and i want it to be more calming and sturdy and stable like we've got guidance coming for you for this question and so part of me thinks i'm a little bit crazy (laughs) when i say these things out loud it's like okay pete is uh has some odd associations maybe from his childhood about a monster in his closet but then but then great creative folks like oh Thank you. That, that is so yes, helpful for me. Absolutely.
1: And that, that is super helpful. And the way you provided that feedback is very helpful. It's very specific. One thing that drives highly talented, creative people crazy more than anything else is when somebody says, it's not working for me. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very helpful to me. But when you say, and, and this is really important as well, when you say, hey, I see what you're doing here. I see what you're going for. I think I understand your strategy and your logic here. And it's not quite working for me. And let me elaborate on why it doesn't quite resonate with me. Do you think we could do something like this? Or do you think we could change this thing? Or do you think you could think about it through this lens? That is super helpful feedback for creative people because, listen, they want to get the project right. It's not just about following their idea. It's about accomplishing the goal of getting the project. I mean, you're the client, right? Or you're the manager Mm -hmm. or whatever. They want to please you. They want to do what satisfies your objectives. But they need very specific feedback and they need to understand that you see them and you see what they're doing and that you care about the thought that went into the project. When you just go up to someone and you say, well, it's not working for me. Basically what you're doing is you're discounting the last three weeks of their life. Yeah. <laughs> you're saying like, that's not working. What, what else you got for me? Okay, not helpful. Um, and so I would just as encouragement to you, Pete, the way that you offer that feedback, being very precise about what you like and what you don't like,
0: that's exactly what creative people need from you in order to produce their best work. Good, good. Well, uh, sometimes I wonder or worry, like, am I driving this person to the edge of their sanity? Like, ah, this guy listen, to, you know, but, uh, so thank you for that uh, affirmation that, (laughs) that is indeed helpful as opposed to pushing people to uh, a breakdown of sorts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will also say that one of the other things that's a struggle is that this exists in tension, right? So yes, Feedback is important. Yes, being very precise and specific and setting boundaries is important, but there has to be freedom within those boundaries to explore, to take risks, to try things. And so some leaders go overboard on the controlling piece, right? They go overboard on the feedback piece. And they, instead of saying, hey, here are the boundaries, here's what I'm looking for. Why don't you play around with this and see what you can come up with? Instead, they say, I want you to make a video for me that does this and this and this. And here's the look I want. And here's an example of something that's just like it. Now go make it. Well, that's not very motivating either because there's no challenge there. Yes, there is stability for the creative, but there's no challenge there for the highly talented creative person. And so what they're going to do is basically just say, okay, well, just tell me what to do. That's fine just tell me what to do. And you're not going to get the best work out of them. You're not going to get the blessing of their intuitive perception, that connection, their years of experience, because you're basically telling them what to do. So what we're aiming for is a bounded autonomy, freedom within boundaries, and then frequent checkpoints in which you give feedback, like you gave before, which is beautiful. It was wonderful feedback. That's exactly what you need. Hey, here's some feedback. Now, why don't you go work on it within these rails, Then you check back in and say, okay, we're getting closer now. Let me give you a little bit more feedback. Now go work on it.
0: Great. And that's what a healthy creative process looks like. That is well said. Thank you. And so if if folks are are making the leap associated from, you know, they were doing the creative making of stuff and and now they're beginning to do some management of, of folks who are doing that for them or for the team. You know what are some of the the key mental shifts uh, adjustments that need to go down? Yeah, this is a real struggle. It's
1: it, and I love it how you say the the mental shifts or the I call them in the book the mindset shifts, right? That you have to make when you transition from maker to manager. Listen, when you're early in your career and you're making work, you're a tactician and again, I when I say making work, or I say creative people, we're, we're all creative as a function of our job. We have to solve problems. Creativity is solving problems. It's what we do every day. So if you have to go to work and solve problems every day, this applies to you. You are a creative professional. But when we go to work and we do something functionally, so if we're performing a task, we're producing some kind of work, and basically we're accountable for making sure that that work is great. That's our job. And we produce a result or a product or whatever it is. Um, at the end of the day, we measure our success as a maker by how great the product is. And so I can draw a very direct line between my efforts and the end result. And I can say, I made that. That's how I define myself. you know. And so, for example, in the world of agencies, creative agencies, which is where I spend some of my time, A designer can define themselves as a brilliant designer. They become known for their work. They have a style. They have a thing that they do. Maybe if you're a, a salesperson, you have a specific way that you approach sales, specific way that you approach relationships, and you become known as the person who does that thing. That's what you're known for. You're the closer. You're the person who can get the result, which is great. But the moment you transition from maker to manager, you have to make a couple of significant shifts in how you think about it because you are no longer defined by the work you do. You're defined by how you lead other people who are doing that same work, which is a difficult transition for people to make who have defined themselves their entire career as a person who does a thing. Okay, well, if I'm no longer defined as a person who does a thing, who makes a thing, who uh, manages a relationship, whatever that is, if that's no longer me, how do I define myself as a leader? Who am I anymore? I don't even recognize myself, right? Because, which is why many leaders, when they first transition to a manager role, default to control. They default to clamping down, to stepping into doing the work for their team because they think I can do it better than my team members can. I've been doing it for five years. I know the job better than they do. So I'm going to step in and make sure that the job is done the way it needs to be done. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is you're not giving those people the chance to grow, to take risks, to develop their skills. And over time, your entire team's sphere of influence and their capacity never grows beyond your direct sphere of involvement. And you're going to train your team just to stop and think, okay, you know what? Just tell me what you want me to do. I'm just going to wait for you to tell me what to do. That's what you're going to train your team to do. And you're not going to retain people with a lot of potential, highly talented, creative people for very long, if that's your mindset. So you have to transition from a mindset of control, which is all about getting the work right now to a mindset of influence, which is I am going to lead you and guide you and provide that bounded autonomy for you, give you a chance to play and take risks and try things with frequent checkpoints. And I'm going to check in with you and make sure that you're on course but I'm going to give you the freedom to experiment and play and develop your skills so that the capacity of our team is growing over time beyond the sphere of my direct involvement. And that's a really difficult thing, Pete, for leaders to do because they have been defined by the work they produce. You would think that when you get promoted to a managerial role, you would think, oh, hey, I've arrived, right? Now I've got you know there's the, the egos kicking in and all of that. But for a lot of people, there's a, a bit of an identity crisis that happens because who am I now? How do I define myself? So we have to define ourselves as people who lead by influence, not by control.
0: Well said. Well said. And and so now I'm curious when it comes to the, the influence and control point. A lot of listeners have shared that you know they don't even they don't even have the option of control, right? They, they don't actually have direct reports that they have the the power to to reward, to review, etc. And yet. You know, within their their sprawling matrixy whatever organization, you know, <laughs> th- they need to to be persuasive and and influential and right. and have folks indeed uh, produce up uh, something and, and and something good. So I'd love it if you have any sort of special prescriptions for being influential in that space and and getting things done and, and getting things done brilliantly. Absolutely.
1: Well, first of all, you have to prove yourself as competent, right? That's the baseline for any level of influence in any setting is, you know, if, if you're not doing the work, if you haven't shown yourself capable of doing the work, no one is going to respect you. So when I say stop doing the work, as, you know, when you transition to, to being a maker, that implies that you have actually proven before that you can do the work, right? That <laughs> you're, you're stepping back from it. But the main thing with regard to leading by influence is it's really important. We talked earlier about making sure that you understand what drives drives other people leading by influence is letting other people know what drives you it's letting them understand your leadership philosophy what is it that you expect from other people how do you think about work what are the battle lines that you draw right when it comes to how you do your job and how you uh, interact with other people so for example uh, you know it's really important that other people understand how you define what quality work looks like that can be such a subjective thing. So you need to communicate to the people around you, hey, when you come to me with something, here's how I measure whether this is good enough or not. Here's how I measure whether an idea is right or not. Here's how I believe conflict should be handled. Let's talk about that philosophy of how conflict should be handled. Should be handled individually, should be handled should should I be involved every time there's conflict, right? So it's important that you communicate to other people. There has to be some overriding leadership philosophy or point of view that you're communicating to other people so that they understand how to interact with you and they understand how you're making decisions uh, and they understand the guiding philosophy that is informing your personal choices and interactions with them. There was uh, an Australian businessman who once told uh, author Tom Peters that he basically had a very simple leadership philosophy and it was I want to reward excellent failures and punish mediocre successes, (laughs) which means if you succeed in a very mediocre way, I'm going to punish you because that's not what we're aiming to do here. I expect you to take risks and try things. And if you fail, but you fail in an excellent way because we've learned something, because you've learned something, you've developed a skill, you've given us a head start in our competition, even though we failed in some way. Great, you will be rewarded for that, and so it's really important that we communicate those kinds of rails to the people around us and help them understand how the grid through which we're making decisions, the grid through which people are rewarded, the grid through which people will be
0: you know will be uh, reprimanded. Mm, I like that a lot, and so I'm thinking now about the how do you measure quality. I think if we zoom into just the realm of reports, proposals, spreadsheets, uh, maybe it's it's not as sexy as a logo or a website or or, or something but in that realm I, i'd love it if you could maybe share a couple sort of precise examples of of how someone might articulate this is what i expect from an outstanding write up sent to me
1: yeah oh that's that's a great question it, I, again part of the challenge is that Quality is and it's right there in the word it's qualitative right it's part of the challenge. So what is quality in one circumstance may not be quality in another circumstance. It just totally depends on the objectives, depends on the client. you know there are probably clients who want something fast. More than they want it to be maybe of the utmost quality from from your sort of subjective opinion, but I always like to encourage people at the end of any project to, to basically ask three questions to determine whether it 's quality or not, uh, or whether that the project was successful or not in that way. Number one, did we accomplish our objectives? so we went into the project knowing we were trying to accomplish something we were trying to create something, so does the thing that we did solve the problem we were trying to solve? Okay. If the answer is yes, great. Wonderful. Secondly, did we maintain our values in the process? Because if you produce something, but in the process of producing that you destroyed the team around you, or there was all kinds of backbiting and infighting and everybody hates one another now. Well, okay. I would be really hard pressed to say that was a successful project <laughs> because yeah, you produced a quality in product that accomplished the objective, but the team hates itself. So the process was in some way corrupt. So I think you have to include the process in that definition of quality too. Did we engage in a quality process? Do we maintain our values in the midst of it? And then finally, and, and this is a little bit subjective, but I always encourage people to ask this question because I think it's important. Are we poised to do it again? So if we had another project just like this come across our desk tomorrow, could we do this again? Are we able to do it again? Or are we completely spent? Are we completely burned out? Are we at a place where there is, you know, I need three weeks in Hawaii to recover, from, <laughs> you know, this project, which is often the case, right? And this is what a lot of teams do. They sprint, 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 sprint. And it's like, okay, we just got to climb this mountain. Once we get to the top of this mountain, we're going to be good. And they get to the top of the mountain and everybody's like, okay, okay. And then they get to the crest of the mountain. They look over and there's another bigger mountain right in front of them that the leader's like, okay, let's go take that one. And people are like, are you kidding me? You told me this was the mountain we had to climb. And now there's a bigger one in front of us. So I think we always have to ask ourselves, are we we poised to do it again? Can we continue producing work at the rate that we're producing this work? Or are we going through cycles of crash, burn, refresh? I think that has to be included in the definition of quality and excellence as an organization in order to continue
0: producing work, to be prolific, brilliant, and healthy over the long term. I like that a lot, and it's resonating. And I'm thinking about my own exhaustion. <laughs> like, hmm, what what needs to change here? Is it is it more help? Yeah. Is it just a clearer sense for how long things actually take? Because I've never used those tools before, and it takes some time to learn those tools, even though they say it's supposed to be really easy uh, when they on the sales page of the website.
1: Sure, absolutely. Well, and and this is okay. So this gets sort of to the issue of trust, right? As a, as a leader. You will lose your team if you do that. If you're not being realistic with them, if you're not painting a clear picture of what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, what's expected of them. If you say things like, well, let's just get through this and then we're going to have a couple of days break and then you know, you get to the end of the project on a Friday and you say, actually, I need you guys to come in this weekend because you know, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, you're like office space, right? Yeah, I'm going to need you to come in this weekend. Yeah, you're going to lose your team. You are going to, now you won't lose them immediately They'll show up, they'll do their job begrudgingly, but they're not going to be engaged. And I guarantee you, they're going to be looking for other jobs before too long if that happens very frequently. Because you know, most leaders don't blow trust in the big ways. It's not, you're not overtly lying to your team. You're not overtly underpaying them. You're not overtly doing things that are causing dissension and all of that it's the little things that cause us to lose trust. And trust is the currency of creative teams. You cannot function as a creative team without trust because trust is what enables us to take risks. Trust is what enables us to collaborate. Even when we disagree with an idea, I trust you enough that I'm willing to go your direction because I believe, I trust that you have my best interests in heart. I'm willing to do that. And if we begin to forfeit trust, we forfeit everything as a creative leader.
0: Well, I would love to hear a few little examples of how trust gets eroded that might really strike home and cause people to look themselves in the mirror and go, "Uh
1: oh." <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm going to give you. I'll give you one very quick story. So I live in Southern Ohio. And a couple of years ago, there was a bear spotted in Southern Ohio, which is an anomaly by the way. And I'm not sure where you're based, but like, we don't really have (laughs) bears around here, you know? So Uh, My kids were freaked out. They're like, oh my gosh, there's a bear in Southern Ohio. Like they're envisioning this bear, like, you know, climbing up the wall of our house and sneaking into their (laughs) room and eating them in their sleep, you know? And I'm like, listen, 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 that bear is like a hundred miles from here. I live in Cincinnati, right? I was like, okay, the bear is like a hundred miles east of here. It's out in the woods. Like that bear has no interest whatsoever in coming into the city. Like that bear is perfectly happy. It's going to make its way back over to Kentucky where it belongs. It's going to be fine. Everything's good. Don't worry about the bear. You're never going to see that bear in a million years. Uh Two weeks later, Pete, two weeks later, I pull out of my driveway, I turn right, I go down to the bottom of the hill, and there's a news crew camped out at the bottom of the hill, right down the block from our house. And so I roll down my window and I say, hey, what's going on? They say, you're not going to believe this. About a half hour ago, two joggers saw the bear run into the creek across the street. A block from my house, Pete, <laughs> the bear was in my neighborhood. The bear was literally in my backyard. The bear that I had promised my kids, oh, it's 100 miles away, there's no way you're ever going to see that bear, was in my neighborhood. Over the course of the next two weeks, that bear was seen basically in every place we go. Restaurants, it was in the trash at some of the restaurants we eat at. It was seen uh, in the trash of like some of our neighbors, was running around the neighborhood people saw it running in the moonlight all around our house. Let's just say that dad lost a little bit of credibility with the whole bear thing with the kids for like three months after that. It was like, now dad, is this really true? Or is this kind of like the bear thing? Right? So not a good thing, but uh, super cute, cute story, not cute for dad, but cute for the kids. But we do this as leaders all the time. We do. I call this declaring undeclarables, We we say something because we think, oh, this is most likely going to happen, so I can declare this as an undeclarable, hey, if you work this Saturday, I'm going to give you next Friday off. Well, actually, something came up. I didn't have anything to do with it, but somebody up above me said that we need to work on this thing, so I'm going to need you here on Friday, right? It's a little thing. It's a very little thing, but it's not little when your team takes your words to heart. And, yeah, and they made so, a plan. They were going to do a cool thing on Friday. They, now
0: they're not going to do it.
1: That's exactly right. They their made a family, plan. They're friends. That's right. And it's really easy to navigate yourself to a place as a leader where your words mean nothing. They mean nothing. And so when it comes to encouraging your team to take a big risk, to follow you into the metaphorical battle of doing complex, difficult, creative work, they're not going to follow you. They might follow you begrudgingly. They might go behind you, but they're not really following you because they don't really trust you anymore. You know, it's the little things we do as leaders that forfeit trust. So I encourage people to think about, is there a place in my leading right now where I am saying things because most likely I'm going to be okay, but I can't guarantee that it's really going to happen because that's a way that you potentially are setting yourself up for a breach of trust. You have to be careful about your words because your words actually have weight
0: to the people on your team. Your words matter. That's potent. Thank you. Todd, tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I think the main thing that I want to encourage people in is, listen, if you have hired
1: talented, bright, sharp, amazing, driven people for your team, understand that they care about the work and they care about the mission and they care about you as a manager. It may not always seem like it, but they care about you as a manager and they want it's really important to them that they're doing work that matters to them so you have to know them they need to know that you see them that you believe in them you know what makes them tick that you see the great work that they're doing the sacrifices that they're making you know this is another thing we often overlook as managers we don't recognize the blood, sweat, and tears that actually goes into doing creative work. And so just I, I just want to encourage people, listen, you need to know your team. You need to provide stability for them and protect them from the chaos monster of the organization. But you also need to give them permission to take risks, to be themselves, and to know I see you, I value you, I believe in you, and I know that you're capable of great things. It's just that we need those great things to be within a kind of bounded autonomy, and creative pros will respect
0: that. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Well, now, can you share with us a favorite quote? Something you find inspiring?
1: Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a long one. And I could say, I could say it verbatim, but I, I often share this when I speak. It's by Thomas Merton, who is one of my favorite thinkers and writers. He was a cloistered monk in Kentucky, actually just outside of Louisville in the mid 1900s and wrote, I think, some of the most potent observations about life and, and art and work and spirituality. But he said there can be an intense egoism in following everyone else. People are in a hurry to magnify themselves by imitating what is popular and too lazy to think of anything better. Hurry ruins saints as well as artists. They want quick success, and they're in such a hurry to get it, they cannot take time to be true to themselves. And when the madness is upon them, they justify their haste as a species of integrity. So the part that really resonates with me is that the part about being in such a hurry, they want quick success that they're in a hurry to emulate other people in order to get it. And that's a reminder to me that I need to step back on a consistent basis and ask, am I navigating according to where I believe I should be? Or am I navigating according to what everyone around me thinks I should do? Because it's really easy, Pete, and I'm sure you've seen this in your work as well. It's really easy to get to a place and look back and say, I never wanted to be here. I just did what everybody else told me I should do or what they would do in my circumstance. And there are all kinds of reasons people will tell you to take a risk or do something, Pete, right? There are all kinds of reasons they'll say, oh, yeah, you should go do that because they just want to see if you'll jump off the cliff, right? They don't have your best interest at heart. Yeah, you should go do that. So you have to be really careful to make sure you're navigating towards something meaningful and not just emulating others for the sake of quick success. So that's what that that quote does for me.
0: Ooh, that is, that's powerful and wise, and, and I, I wish I took that to heart maybe the first Damn. three years of my business. I, I think I, I just sort of said, oh, I should start a blog? Okay. Oh, I should be on Twitter? Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's like, no, 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 no. The very first step is to yeah. identify a need that I can contribute to in a helpful way <laughs> that right. real people that's have right. and from a business perspective will ultimately pay for. It's like, oh, that's exactly right.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) That's more
0: important than starting a blog.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And we see this, right? We see people copying tactics because tactics seem to work in the short run. And that that applies to large organizations as well as small. I mean, how how many times have I come into an organization and you see the book du jour on somebody's desk, right? And it's like, well, okay, everybody in the organization is reading this because this is the book du jour. But it's just the latest trend. You know, it's just the latest thing that everybody's reading, but it's not really solving their problem. It's just we're chasing after something. So it's always important that you step back. And um, by the way, if you want to make Herding Tigers your book du jour, I would fully endorse that. That's <laughs> totally great. But, you know, if not, if it's not for you, that's great, too. But, you know, we have to step back and ask what problem are, are we really trying to solve here? And what's the best way for us to solve this problem? Not what everybody else do. What
0: would everybody else do in our circumstance? Lovely. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
1: Yeah, so I'm actually, it's funny, the first thing that comes to mind right now is I'm reading a book called The Hitmakers, which is about how things become popular in an age of distraction. It's really, really fascinating. And one of the the studies that they reference in the book is a study about the fact that people tend to, we, we tend to think that people like things that are extremely novel, extremely new, extremely, you know, creative from that perspective and the reality is we actually don't we actually like things that that slightly push the boundary but also feel extremely familiar and that's why a lot of the pop music that is so popular you know, people are like oh that's so repetitive and mundane and whatever. Well, but, but there's something about it that is unique. There's some hook or something that makes it feel a little bit edgy, but it's still rooted in something very familiar to people, which is why a lot of pop music, you know, the popular music sounds very similar on the radio. They all have sort of a unique hook, but really if you dissected the song, they're all often very, very similar because that's what is human beings. That's what we gravitate towards. So if, you're in a place where you want to introduce an idea into your organization. It's not always best to go in and say, "I have something nobody has ever thought of before." No, no. You need to say, "Hey, here's kind of where we are, and here's the ground that we're kind of taking right now, And here's kind of an intuitive leap just beyond the balance of where we are. What do you think? And you have to contextualize it for people and help them connect the dots if you want it to, to resonate. So I can't remember the name of the study. I can't remember who did it, but that's the one that's really really uh, clicking with me right now.
0: Oh, good. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something
1: you use that helps you be awesome at your job? Yeah, I use the writing tool Scrivener. For anyone who does long form writing, it is by far my favorite tool I've ever used for writing. It allows you to write write in a nonlinear way. I tend to write my books from the inside out. I don't write them from the beginning to the end. So I can work on sections at a time and just put you know a couple hundred words in a section and whatever I'm thinking about at that point in time, It's uh, it's great. So Yeah, I highly recommend Scrivener.
0: Oh, cool. Thank you. And how about uh, a particular nugget, something that you share that really seems to connect and resonate for people?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. The one that gets shared so often on Twitter, like every day there are probably 50 or 60 people that share this, is don't let your rituals become ruts. You know, I think I I spend so much time talking about rituals and building rituals into your life, but it's really easy to allow the ritual to become the objective. You know, I always tell people, listen, your systems in your organization exist to serve you, not the other way around. You you don't exist to serve your systems. People think systems are set it and forget it. They think rituals are set it and forget it. You know, well, we have a recurring meeting every Monday. That's what we do. Really? Really? How long has it been since that meeting's felt extremely productive for your team? So I would just encourage people to look at all the rituals, the systems, the methods, the things that are going on in your life and consider, have any of these rituals become ruts for me? And do I need to shake them up and do something different to jog my creative self?
0: Mm, I like that. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, Todd, where would you point them?
1: Uh, The best way to find me is at toddhenry.com. That's my personal site. And from there, you can get to Axion Creative, the Axion Creative Podcast, which we've been doing for 13 years now, uh, twice a week. So you can uh, check that out at toddhenry.com as well and also find all my books. Lovely. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I do. Listen, friends, because I am in the same boat that you are. I care very deeply about my work as I know that you do. I care very deeply about the people I work with as I know that you do. It's important to recognize that that project you're working on is going to be forgotten in 50 years. <laughs> that, that company that you're building right now, nobody's going to remember that in 50 or 75 or 100 years. That amazing campaign you did that won all of those awards, nobody's going to care about that in 50 years. Uh, not to depress anyone, but that's the reality. The truth is, the way that you influence the people around you, the way that you lead other people, the, the way that you impact their life for the better, is going to continue to resonate. Down through generation after generation after generation, the way that you build into people is going to echo for generations to come. That is your legacy. That is your body of work. That's the only thing that's going to last from how you spend your days right now. So, my encouragement to anyone out there who has any form of leadership responsibility, which is all of us, because we lead ourselves and lead other people, lead the people around us. But if you have influence over people, I encourage you to commit to being a leader who makes echoes because
0: that is your legacy. Awesome. Todd, this has been so much fun. Thank you for sharing this. I wish you tons of luck with Accidental Creative and Herding Tigers and, and all the cool stuff you're doing. Thanks so much, Pete. Thanks for the great work that you do. I mean, very few people understand how hard it is
1: to continue to produce great content like you do week after week. So thank you for committing to all of us who are fans of your work and continuing to stay committed to, to producing great work.
0: Oh, thank you. You know, this conversation with Todd for me personally was super fun and helpful because it just kind of brings me back to my own relationship with art and creative stuff. And and I think that when I was first learning about literature and whatnot as a youngster, I kind of got frustrated because they'd say, well, what's the theme? I was like, well, I mean, it could be this, could be this, could be this. How do I know what the author intended the theme to be? It's kind of tricky. And, and then when they told me what the theme was, I was like, really? Do you think that person was going there? You just kind of read way too much into it and so in that realm of creative stuff artistic outputs that was sort of how i began approaching it like what does this mean and then later on, when I took a modern dance class in college, I had an assignment to go view a modern dance show. And, and I didn't know what anything meant, but I just sort of shared, hey, this kind of made me feel like this, kind of reminded me of a kid on the playground who was excluded and what that might mean for that person. And and then the modern dance instructor was, was so delighted and impressed, apparently, with what I thought was just making stuff up off the top of my head. She's like, oh, I'd love for you to come see my modern dance show and, and tell me what you think. And, and so from there, it sort of shifted my view to art. And and now whenever I'm like working with a creative on like a logo or something, I just tell them exactly how it makes me feel. Like that question mark is freaking me out. It's like looming over and kind of spooky. And it's been cool to see how creative folk just respond to that. And to hear Todd, sort of the the expert guru on creative stuff, affirm that and say, oh, yeah, that's really great. Like, like creative folk can eat into that and dig in and, and make some things happen. So really cool to feel edified. And I'm just going to let my weird feelings just uh, be expressed unreservedly when interacting with creative folk. And I'd like to hear maybe a, a fun tale or two from you, the listener, in terms of if you're trying that, doing that what unfolds for you and and how does that response get you to better output. So that's that story. Now, I hope you will push subscribe if you haven't already. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Melissa Dahl. She's the author of Cringeworthy, A Theory of Awkwardness. We're talking about that awkward feeling, what makes it come about, how to deal with it. Until next time, peace.